This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. For any updates to your motorcycle, check out the Fit My Bike on Renthal.com. Steve English, David Emmett and Neil Morrison on today's pod. And David, it's a special podcast. We've got Peter Baum involved and uh, you were able to sit down for what must have been about seven cups of coffee for you with <laughs> Peter. And Peter's always interesting. Super experienced engineer, world championship winning crew chief. And uh, he's been a Eurosport colleague of yours in the past and really respected technical views all the way through the paddock. And it was a really interesting chat you had with him. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he uh, sort of came round because he was seeing um, uh, people that he works with uh, uh, because his other job is as a data analyst. He works with 2D. Uh, he's very experienced with uh, with, with 2D. Um, and uh, he was just popping around to see, that, to see someone who lived near me. Then he came around to uh, to mine. And uh, first of all, we sat down and chatted about uh, MotoGP for uh, an hour and a half. And then we sat down and recorded an interview uh, for the podcast for another hour and a half. So, yeah, I mean, we could... Uh, quite literally just sit there and talk about motorbikes all day. He's a, a, a fascinating, very intelligent, very insightful um, and and also just a really nice bloke. Genuinely a really a, a really lovely bloke. Intelligent, insightful, passionate. Well, you, you were one of those three as well, Dave. <laughs> um, obviously, Neil, Neil, the Sirocco Morrison, the desert wind back from <laughs> Morocco. And uh, you've been on your holidays, Neil. So it looks like you've got a little bit of a tan, but that might just be the sand. Yeah, that's just the dirt that's accumulated over my face, Steve. No chance of a tan around here. I was wrapped up, um, as you would expect, in the desert. Not uh, any skin on show whatsoever. My dermatologist will be happy with uh, that news. Um, but yeah, no, it was great. Uh, 10 days in Morocco after the, the season was a nice little holiday. And despite having to do a little bit of work, uh, throughout those 10 days and uh, tucked up in the hotel room my girlfriend wasn't best pleased that she had to go out uh, in Tangier and then uh, Marrakesh later explore it by herself but um, yeah overall fantastic uh, fantastic holiday even got to do a little bit of um, quad bike riding in the uh, the Saharan dunes uh, one morning which was absolutely fabulous as we went to watch uh, the sunrise from a certain spot um, so yeah that would be uh, I would say it's a, it's a trip you'd have to do Obviously, Neil, whenever you're quad biking through the desert, you need to have the best safety equipment possible. So fly racing will certainly leave you well covered for that. But uh, Dave, that must have been Neil's version of the Tangier crisis, looking out the hotel window and uh, being stuck there working away. It was almost like probably one of your holidays, to be honest, Dave. Uh, yeah, yes, yes. I mean, you know, the thing about working in MotoGP is you get to travel the world and then sit in a hotel room and uh, type at your laptop and occasionally look out of the window. So yeah the, the the glamour is not quite what it uh, what it could be but yeah it is it is always nice when you can actually make a little bit a bit of space a little bit of time to actually you know get outside and wander around and and uh, take in the scenery and realize that uh, as great as motorbikes are there is slightly more to life than just motorbikes yeah i would love to say that i was fully equipped in uh, fly racing equipment when i was doing the quad biking but uh, unfortunately it was basically the the guys that arranged the tour that were providing the equipment 
equipment. So I had a Bell uh, motocross helmet that was about three sizes too small, kind of stuck to my head with my nose <laughs> and my chin pointing out of the, 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 the visor area and then the, the bottom of it. So it wasn't uh, the most uh, beautiful sight, but um, yeah, the views made up for it, I would say. I'd imagine they did, Neil. Now, we're going to keep this really short with us because obviously enough people want to hear someone interesting on the pod. That's going to be Peter Baum. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to hear from David and Peter in uh, in their chat about MotoGP. It's going to be a long show. So what we've actually done is we're going to split this interview into two and then next week we'll be able to run the second half of the interview. But uh, after the break, you're going to hear from David and Peter. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. I like to pretend that I know something about motorbikes, and then I talk to Peter and realize that I don't know anything about motorbikes. So um, uh, Peter is here to explain to us um, what everyone did to their motorbikes this year. I think that's a good place to start. Um, we'll go through the bikes sort of, you know, brand by brand. But first of all, what did you think of the championship this year? Poor. That was exciting enough. I mean, it's a luxury situation. We kept the title open uh, until the last round, and it was it was exciting, but it also very intense. It was clear. At some point, I was thinking nobody really wants this championship because it's full of mistakes from, from everybody, from manufacturers, from riders. But somehow, at the end of the year, we have a champion who's simply got the most points. But um, there's been a lot of mistakes. Even our current world champion, I mean, he's really, really a real world champion, an honest guy. You know, I mean, it's, excuse my, my English, but you know, he's, he's a good champion. He's there definitely not, uh, for any other reason that he was one of the best guys and he had the best guy over the whole year, but he made a lot of mistakes and got away with it so much that I was thinking, oh, what's going, what's going on here? It's, uh, and the reason for me behind that, that this championship is finally went to the guy who also who just made a lot of mistakes is because it's so intense. More people made more mistakes, unbelievable mistakes. Some of them hard to understand. Most of them, and uh, in the championship, yeah, you can summarize it in being very, very intense. Uh, because um, if you look at the second half of Pekka Banyas championship, it looks a lot like. Um, if you like, it, it looks a lot like Mark Marcus because it was, you know, podium almost every race except for falling off at Mategi. Uh, but you look at the first half of the championship and he looks useless. He looks just, it was just absolutely terrible. Yeah. Uh, whereas, I mean, Fabio's, the first half of Fabio's championship was strong but not fantastic. 
And the second half, he just went to pieces. There was just, um, uh, I think he had one podium, maybe two podiums in the second half after the summer break. Um, it was just, just I think, two podiums. Um, it, it was just, you know, really not good enough. Um, and when you say intense, you think because of the level of competition, because there's so many different people who are competitive or... Yes. Yeah. Like Jack Miller explained, uh, tried to explain to us why nowadays... Um, you can be on the podium one week and the next week you're struggling to get even one point and it's not like you became that much worse of a rider or your team or your crew chief completely lost the plot in one or two weeks. No, it's not like that. But if you fail two or three tenths in in, in, in qualifying lap, there, you're there. That's three rows behind and so on and so on. So, yeah, the normal differences from race weekend to race weekend that we used to think of as normal a couple of years ago are, are, are big problems now you have to be on top of the game every weekend more or less to, to, to if you have one say a weekend a little bit worse than in the past you still get a fifth place on half a second on half a minute but still a fifth place now you're not even having one point so that's what I probably mean that's what I mean with intense it also means that the pressure is so high, these guys are realizing it, and therefore they are also uh, easier make mistakes by themselves. Is this also because we've been missing Mark Marquez? Because, you know, he's just been absent for the past three seasons. No, this has not a lot to do with Mark Marquez. No, this is just the level of, uh, of the championship is, is here, because especially after Ducati really opened throttle a couple of years ago, they raise the bar so much that everybody is struggling to keep up the technology, the technology to follow the Ducatis. And the intensity of riding that comes with the changes that Ducati brought into the championship. I mean, we're still riding motorbikes around in circles, but we do it in a quite a different way since Ducati entered the game, really. And that also makes it harder. So everything comes down to Ducati again. They changed the game a lot in many, many ways. That's why it's so hard for if you're for everybody, also for the Ducati riders themselves, everything is a lot more intense. You know, the braking area is shorter. Uh, you have to find your way around the corner on a Ducati in some way. You have you're responsible for that because the bike doesn't really do it that well, but it accelerates. If you find the sweet spot of dropping the right high device and opening the throttle and feeling the grip and controlling the tire slip, etc., etc. Every corner again, you have to be really precise with that. And Peko is actually very, very good at that. So when he's when he's on a roll, he extracts the best of the Ducati. And that's why, you know, that's why he became the Ducati world champion this year. But the total game is very, very intense. And small mistakes, if you're 10% of your best, you're, you'll miss 50% of the lap time. Uh, I mean, let's get straight to Ducati because um, eight bikes on the grid. I mean, we spoke to when we interviewed uh, Gigi Linia earlier this year. Uh, he sort of said, you know, like eight eight bikes on the grid is the best thing that you can have as, a, as an engineer, just because of the amount of data. What I mean, before we would always see, you know, the Ducati is fast, um, and that's it. Now it seems like the Ducati is strong in a lot of areas. It has. Uh, a lot of acceleration. I was watching at Valencia, and you could see that uh, Ducatis weren't using the ride height device um, out of eleven, which is the that's the short run before the right, and then the long, long left for for thirteen. Um, everyone else was was using it there. They seem to be using it left. That means that they are finding acceleration somewhere else, um, which 
it's maybe the difference this year. That may have been you know, the, the, the difference this year, which made them more competitive and also made it more difficult for the rest. There's a lot to... I mean, technically speaking, Ducati raised the bar so far, we hardly see it. You know, they are, they are working, they have problems or they're solving problems that other manufacturers probably don't even realize exist. They're so far ahead. At the same time, it's still a motorbike, an engine and two wheels. But Ducati makes things very, very special. And having the good, the good thing with being, having a very special bike with a very powerful engine and then having eight of them on the grid is that everybody learned from the other one. Because they have a lot of good riders on Ducati. That's another necessity. Eh? You need to have good guys. But everybody's a little bit different. So the different riding styles on more or less the same types of bikes, spread over eight bikes, gives you so much information. Um, after every session, especially at the end of the day, after, the, for example, Friday, free practice two, there is a lot of time to compare everybody's data. So most of the guys had to run on most of the tires available. And then you compare everybody's comments and everybody's data and how they did it. And you can literally make an ideal lap time of that from corner to corner to corner in the data. I'm sure the analysis software, they fiddle with themselves to that and then send that ideal lap time around the teams. So everybody has access to everybody's data. Honestly, all of them have each other's data. Plus they have this sort of ideal lap for sure they have. So they can see, yeah, I'm the fastest Ducati guy, but basically I'm only the fastest guy in two laps, uh, sorry, in two corners. It's just that most of the other corners are not too bad. But still, I can learn something from, for example, Jorge Martin, because since he came to, to MotoGP on Ducati, he, he was the first, in my opinion, the first guy that showed, yes, a Ducati can go around the corner pretty well if you're dedicated enough. So he raised the bar in that area for the Ducati, and the other guys just follow. They literally follow him on track, how he's doing it. They see his data and they need to concentrate only on one or two corners per lap and the others they have already fixed. So, you know, everything works it works for you. If you've got a very strong engine in a, tech, in a bike that has a lot of technical capacities, you've got eight good guys with different riding styles on these bikes. It's not still not easy. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, but that helps a lot. So Gigi is smiling all the way. But um, also, Ducati did make a big, they made a big step forward this year with a the bike. There was a lot of talk about the new fairing, which had less sideways resistance, so it was much more agile. It was easier to turn into, into the corners. And less uh, top speed. And, yeah, and less top speed, yeah. Top speed isn't everything. I remember we interviewed uh, Paul Trevathan from KTM, uh, um, and he was saying, they don't even look at top speed no. anymore. They look at um, time spent. The, the time spent <laughs> on the straight. Um, so the faster you get up to speed, the less you need to worry about your uh, about your top speed. So uh, yeah, it, it becomes acceleration becomes more important yeah. than yeah yeah acceleration is the word, David. Because even when you when we say to it, it's not really top speed. It's it's hard to imagine sometimes or to explain it to people who never seen a, a, a bike accelerating full throttle. Um, it's more than just a point on the start finish straight just before braking. You know, not many people realize how unbelievably hard these bikes accelerate through the whole gearbox, not just first to second, second to third, second to third to fourth, even hitting fifth and hitting sixth. It's a monster. So it's, it's, it's mind-blowing acceleration until the braking point. And just before that braking point, you say top speed, but it's basically just one point during the acceleration. And uh, because of the layout of the circuits, a lot of the speed traps are actually 
on or very close to or uh, uh, even just after the, the the breaking point. So they try to avoid that very sure usually, but it happened. It happened that that yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing with having more power in your bike and then creating a sachet a la Ducati that allows it to use all that power in straight line acceleration. That's all nice and good, but you need to start braking earlier. Yeah, yeah. Because you arrive a lot faster to the next corner. So braking markers, they don't vary so much. You arrive faster, you still brake at the same point. You cannot do everything. You cannot and arrive faster and brake later. So should, speak they, to guys who ride in the wet. Same braking point. Yeah. They arrive a lot slower in the wet, but you need more time to slow down in the wet. So it's still the same braking mark. Augusto Fernandez said exactly the same thing. It's um, good for riders with a bad memory, you know? Yeah. You, you, still, <laughs> exactly. you still need to remember one point. It's enough. Every class you do. Exactly. But the, uh, like I said, Augusto Fernandez said after riding the uh, KTM for the first time, KTM Valencia, guys, yeah, guys, yeah. Uh, at Valencia, he sort of said, you know, what, what surprised him was his braking markers were still exactly the same. <laughs> um, it's just that he didn't have steel brakes. He was going a lot faster and he's got carbon brakes. So he's, uh, um, he's having to decelerate, decelerate a lot more. Um, was there one, I mean, was there one Ducati rider which really impressed you this year and one which really disappointed you, which you felt really, which, you know, didn't impress you? I felt sorry for Fabio Gianantonio. Because mm. if you take out Mugello, which was a spirited ride, and, you know, honestly done it, but he did it more with balls yeah. than by understanding his bike, which I appreciate as well, but it still means that him and the Ducati are not in a sweet place. So, mm. But he goes into this winter a lot better than he was expected to go to him because in Valencia, he was quite good. Eh? Yeah. Not only just the one lap. So the first contact between him and his new crew chief is, is, is quite a good start. Uh, and, but yeah, he struggled. Um I, and that surprised me because he's quite an intelligent rider. He's not riding just with balls like we know him in Moto3 and Moto2. So I was expecting a bit more from him. Sure, there must be something in the background of his life or his head, whatever, something hold it, did hold him back. But I'm sure he will be there next year. The two guys that surprised me positively for different reasons are the obvious names, probably, Peko and Enea. Peko because he's very well fine honed and tuned to when he's when he understands the bikes and 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 uh has has the confidence he's so mesh sharp so precise you know like a serer he's that's that's really beautiful to watch but you know he fell off a couple of times too much yeah. you know with five crashes and still becoming the world champion and four crashes on his own alone his own fault that's quite a number eh? so that goes back to what i meant it's an intense championship you're not allowed to become world champion with five DNFs. He did. Mm. Because the rest of the races, he's either on the podium or crashing. Yeah. And, uh, and Fabio's season was also not perfect. So in the end, it goes to the right guy. But it's, it says a lot that he went, he became champion with four crashes on himself while being in front of the race. But when he's good, he's really, really good. Then he extracts, he's the guy that extracts most regularly everything from the Ducati. So. Yeah, Inea Bastianini at points, a little bit the same for Jorge Martin. At some moments in the season, they did something very, very special with the Ducati, but they couldn't repeat it often yeah. enough. Yeah. And that, that reliability, that consistency, Peko was the best in that. But do you think that Enea will be, will be able to find that consistency? It is to be expected that he will. There is no reason now to say he will not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I can't promise you, nobody can promise, but it looks like, yeah, going over his career, his seasons. I've seen him in Moto3 when he was a, considered a big talent. I think he was even official ace rider in Moto3 yeah. in the Grisini team. 
So they already grabbed him. Okay, he's an interesting guy. But he didn't do every year enough for yeah. that. So we had this ups and downs, but brought him. What he did a couple of times this year was quite special. And I said, okay, Jorge Martin as well. But I also was impressed by the way he went on to fight with Peko. Yeah. That promises us, that gives me, I can't wait for next year. Yeah, exactly. So the factory Ducati box, yeah. you want to be there in the pit lane studying what's going on inside because it's going to be a different atmosphere yeah and he is not there to be friends with peko no no jack just his check yeah not at all jack was nice and friendly and helpful and all the rest of it you have to like jack exactly but um uh an is not there he's he's there to win uh, to win races i have to say that uh, i was impressed by marco uh, marco patecki because you know he was a rookie he was just he was completely outperformed everything you can go we can go over the whole name of the Katirai and probably we should do because you're right you know Pazeki was really impressive yeah yeah, well, really I mean, really good if I had to say that there was one rider that I was um, disappointed by I would say Jean Zarco because yeah. uh, in qualifying he was outstanding he was just Usually, very yes. very strong uh, obviously Zarco has a disadvantage because Zarco is Ducati's test rider yeah. yeah exactly he's the stuff but it's again the second half of the season that's yeah. the story of his life yeah yes his season is too long <laughs> and bad news for him you got sprint races to do next year exactly he needs to go to world superbikes <laughs> so we're, we're, you know like a, a 12 race they season should some be long breaks yeah well, okay later more about that yes Arco, definitely you're right yeah um yamaha uh obviously well all right why is it that it's only fabio who can ride that bike I mean, first of all, a little bit of background. What I understood is basically they were racing all year with the 2020 engine or a slightly revised version yeah, of the yeah, 2020 yeah, yeah. engine Horrible. because the 2022 engine, which they tested, started blowing up during testing, wasn't reliable enough and they had to, uh, they, they had yeah, to go they back had to no it. no plan B. No, they had no plan B. Round to the back of the shop, there's some old engines there. That's it for this year. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah, we can probably get another yeah. sort of uh, two horsepower out of it, but it's not going to make it. They paid heavy for that with Fabio by trying to sign him later yeah. for starting the season on the bike like that yeah. but then then to convince him to stay with them that must have been expensive uh yeah but also i think not even in just in terms of his wage but also the fact that they've got um i forget the um the chap's name they've got someone from uh, an f1 engineer who was involved in toyota and ferrari uh, also as i was leaving uh, the valencia on tuesday night after the test i saw tom o'kane in a yamaha shirt <gasps> i think that good is for them yeah i think that's really good for them yeah because exactly. i saw him in the suzuki box all weekend yes exactly <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think we'll come to suzuki later but i yeah. mean look uh, yeah. i think tom uh, plays a massive Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In, yeah, yeah, in yeah, the yeah, fact yeah. that that bike completely overperformed. Yeah. Um, but later about the Suzuki, the Yamaha. <laughs> but Yamaha, so, so why why could only Fabio ride the bike? Because we saw, I mean, Dobby got on the bike, couldn't ride it. I mean, that's to an extent to be expected. Uh, he never liked this rear tyre and he spent too long on a Ducati. Darren's a rookie. Oh, well, I mean, like, I, I thought Darren did pretty well for. Uh, considering how deeply into the deep end he was actually thrown. Um, and Franco, Frankie just was just absolutely a shadow of himself. Yeah. And Cal got on the bike in the second half of the season and showed that there was, the, the, you know, there wasn't that much wrong with the bike. So to come back to your question, you maybe answered it yourself. There was only one real rider on the four Yamahas. Yeah. There was, there was only one. 
but Binder didn't impress me as much as she did many others. And he was on an older bike as well. So that's completely forget about him. The, the big, big disappointment, the tragedy is Franco Morbidelli. Yeah. That's unbelievable. That's maybe another podcast on its own. So it was just Fabio. That's him. And when he realized that in the beginning of the year, he said, okay, well, what can I do? I need to do the season and I'm just going to stop complaining and crying about the bikes being not fast enough and just give everything I have. And which he did in a way. He didn't really complain, stopped complaining, but he complained in another way. Yeah. <laughs> he makes, he didn't say it and then makes you still think the bike's slow, but I'm yeah. good. But he didn't say it literally, but makes you think. So no, he did. It's, it's in a way. Okay. Fabio is a really special rider. I mean, it's not, it's for a really good reason that he was, that he came into MotoGP. It was not a, ga- a big gamble because yeah. when he was really young, he was unbelievable, outstanding special in, in Spanish, in the, in the World Junior Championship. Really, really special there. He lost his way a bit, which can happen with young guys when they've been told every day that you're the best inventions in yeah. sliced bread. So he lost the plot a bit, just in time came back. So, and on the Yamaha now, he's just the only real rider. That's why, in my opinion, like I said earlier, he's the only guy that could ride the Yamaha very well. And it's not like because the Yamaha is an unbelievable difficult bike to ride. I don't buy that. I think there was only one rider on it, and that's all. And he made the right decision, which I... I uh, love when a rider does that. When he says, okay, that's it. I've got to deal with it. A bit Brad Binder style. He could see, do the same. Yeah. When Brad Binder struggles all weekend, when he lines up on Sunday, he still thinks he's going to probably win it yeah. and gave it all. Not like Kamikaze style, but really, really believe in it and gave it all. Every week again. And that's the spirit. And Fabio did that. I probably can't win from the Ducati because they're so much better now. And my Yamaha, I can't even have my new engine. Oh, that's going to be hard, but let's give it all. And then by that mentality, he extracted even more from the Yamaha and from himself than was to be expected. That made him quite special. And with that attitude, he arrived in the summer break with (laughs) over 90 points lead on Fabio, on Teco. Um, It didn't really work out that way because you can't do that. You can't do that every 14 days, the way he was riding the bike. You can't do that all that. We saw it in Asia. Yeah. And that was not stupid. It was just bound to happen at some point because he yeah. did so many miracles that just went right. Yeah. Not like he was out of control, but he took quite some, some risk. I mean, when I say risk, it's like the bike's out of control and he's sliding on. He was, he was really precise always, but he did some really sharp moves on people because otherwise you can't overtake with the Yamaha. Yeah. And just that one went a little bit wrong and it went immediately from, from bad to worse by having zero points and having nearly killed himself on the second crash. So, Asa was like, whoa, okay, that's bad. Um, but yeah. And then Philip Island again, that's where he threw it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Asa, a little bit more, especially Asa was a bit disappointing because it was so early in the race. It's not like we are already half race distance and Fabio, and Fabio can see that Peko is checking out and I need to go. No, no, no. It was so early in the race. And Fabio had an unbelievable pace in all the practice sessions. Even if Peko was taking two and a half a second on him, he would need a little bit of time past Aprilia and he could still win that race. He was just not patient enough. And yeah. I say not patient enough because it was so early. It's going to be a long race. Races in Arsenal are really long. Eh? They are longer than any other track, more or less. Like Philip Islands, it's a really long race because you're always close to everybody. You can overtake everywhere. Yeah. So that was his first mistake. And the other one that I remember was Philip Islands losing his court. More or less the same situation. I don't think he should have won it there, but he would more or less easily put it on the podium, get a lot of points, and he got away with zero again, and just because of himself. 
Yeah. Yeah, so, because it would have been it would have been a very different uh, it would have been a different a very different race at Valencia um, if he'd have even if he'd have scored you know ten points uh, nine points if he'd have ended fifth sixth something seventh he still would have uh, uh, you know all of a sudden you're twelve points behind and that also puts a lot more pressure on uh, on Banya Valencia because you know, Ducati were an absolute uh, it was an absolute disaster that whole boxing um, uh, on Saturday and Sunday it was quite it was it was actually quite funny. Um, <laughs> One thing about Frankie, because the well, two things about Frankie. First of all, like I interviewed uh, Lynn Jarvis, and he said one of the things we did was took away the uh, because he was getting ah, yeah, too involved. Yeah. He was too in much Valentino Rossi. He was being a Rossi, wanting to be too much involved yeah, in yeah, the yeah, technical yeah, side. Yeah. All night, all evening, all night long in the computer with the engineers trying to find things, and then. They explained him so much because riders ask for something. And then an engineer gives them, this is possible, we can do this and this and this and this. And from every option we have, this is the upside, this is the probable downside. So as a group, you start to make a decision based on a lot of assumptions and expectations. And okay, let's let's change the pivot or let's change the steering angle, whatever. But when the rider is involved with that, uh, he tries to be an engineer himself. Yeah. And usually this, does, this doesn't work. Yeah. It, it, it only works if the rider is very experienced, which Frankie is almost, and the crew is not experienced, and the level of the championship is a little bit less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's say Frankie goes to Moto America with a complete new crew on, around him who have no really ID, then he has to do it like this. Yeah. In MotoGP, it's better to say six or seven o'clock in the evening, ciao guys, I go to my hotel room, I take a rest, I have a massage, I in my head, I make a lot of laps all night <laughs> yeah. because I want to. I know where I need to improve myself. I'm going to watch videos, blah blah blah. And you guys think about the bike because I told you everything I know. I told you what I think, and I leave it to you because that's the recept that the next morning comes in the box. The crew chief will tell him, "Okay, we study everything, and we going in this direction. Not too much details. We going in this direction. We change something on the front of the bike to give you more confidence during braking." Probably you will run a little bit wide, see if you can manage it. That's the first run you're going to do. Second run, we test, uh, test the front tire. Third run, we make the best combination of the two. You agree? He agrees. Then, you know, you have to keep a rider's life simple. For some riders, that's simple because they are simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for some people, for some riders, that's very difficult. They want to be too much involved. They make their own life very complicated, usually. And that's, that's what I think that the case was with Rossi in his last years. And with Franco Morbidelli as well, they tried too much to be an engineer, which can help if you are really better than your engineers, but that's seldom the case. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because, I mean, you've got too many things to you think about distracted, already. You know, probably, yeah. probably he, he broke a leg or had a bad crash one time when they put a harder spring in the rear. Next time you hear the word harder spring, he doesn't want to try it really. So he only goes out. So he, he, should, he should not be too much involved in the decision making. And you should, in my opinion, inform him not in too much too much detail about what you change on the bike. For sure, you have to tell him something because, and the truth, but not the complete truth. So if you change something in the rear of the bike to create more mechanical grip, you expect this will be the good side of it. This can probably be the downside. You've got five laps to try it. Your laps, your tires are new. Do your job. You keep his life simple. He knows what is expected from him. And then that way you have the best chance of extracting the best from your riders. Uh, yeah, I mean, the other thing about Franco is if you look at his race pace, his race pace was usually much, much better than, than his qualifying. He just couldn't qualify. He just couldn't pr um, squeeze yeah. that 
extra lap time they're, they're, out of they're it. Just like two or three tenths, which are the difference between sort of you know starting sixth or seventh, second or third row, and starting the fifth, yeah. sixth, seventh row. You know, not even being able to get through to Q two. Um, that was for me. That was that was the big thing. Um, Aprilia. Well, one thing back to to Frankie because what you said now is interesting because there was also quite visible to see when you watch when you watch Frankie or Fabio you see two guys on the same bike Frankie's actually riding the Yamaha like Fabio used to do it like Lorenzo did it before him like you we all told each other that's how you have to ride a Yamaha when Fabio Quattraro realized beginning this year that's not going to be enough he started to put something extra on it he didn't ride the bike very different he just did the same you know, very smooth lines, Turned it up a little to bit more aggressive. He did everything a little bit more aggressive, yeah. a little bit more out of shape, but still using the Yamaha as Yamaha. Yeah. Frankie is old school. Frankie sits in the middle of the bike, has his arms wide, doesn't even hang off enough, doesn't put his upper body where it should be, and doesn't have the bike moving around under him. And so three years ago, he was competitive with that. Modern MotoGP on the Yamaha, that was not enough. Does that mean that he's destined not to be able to succeed or does he have to start riding differently? I'm afraid things don't look very bright for him. That's, yeah, not very hard. Well, he's, we'll, 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 we will see. You know, this. So I, what I mean is I saw very little this year that was positive from Frankie yeah. except from the Sepang race. Yeah. That was unbelievably good all of a sudden, yeah. but that, that was all. And immediately, he had two weeks after that, straight we go to Valencia and from the first lap on nothing. Like the first race, not there. Ooh, I don't know where I, where I should, how it's going to change. I mean, I, I don't see it happen, honestly. Um, Aprilia. Wow, what a bike, eh? <laughs> Everybody loves Aprilia. Everybody loves an underdog. Yeah. And we love the Aprilia. But, uh, I mean, uh, the, because I remember in the first half of the season, we were talking about it being, you know, is this the best bike on the grid? In my opinion, it was. But it isn't anymore. No, so no, what no, went no, wrong? No. <laughs> not sure, but they're not far off. The feeling I, when I look over the whole year, in a couple of races, the bike was unbelievable. I mean, Argentina, Silverstone, the bike was unbelievable. Absolutely. So easy, so awesome. Unbelievable from the last, that, that, last exactly, to that, far. that pass, that pass of Alessia Spargo in the, into, in the, the into the GT. Lap. He did all his passes actually there, but just that one we all remember because it was the it last time yeah, we arrived on the Yeah, exactly. So that Aprilia, if a, if a bike like, if a bike like the Aprilia is a couple of races that unbelievably good, it must be deep inside very good. Yeah. It's just, that and this is where speculation starts it's just that i think that the reason they had also a couple of really off races was usually twofold but it all comes down to the team to the people around it but for two different reasons one reason is they're making too many mistakes yeah people literally mistakes yeah Yeah. hardware software like people mistakes not like judging the grip level wrong by a track control setting that's now a real mistake like putting the wrong traction control setting in it something like that you know that's too many times happened secondly and this is even more speculation but it's the best i can come up with because it's it's like you know it's very interesting looking at aprilia over the year you cannot be that good in the first half of the season and ending the season like that with the same bike that's almost impossible so we all know that teams make quite a lot of changes on the bike from race to race most of the changes you actually make at home in between the races and then in the weekends after the first session you start to fine-tune the bike and the rider until sunday afternoon 
and I think I think in in Aprilia it looks like they have a, a bike with a lot of talent, but they don't understand their own bike good enough and deep enough to always quickly realize which uh, which button to push or what what to change this weekend to make it better. You cannot have the grip from Argentina and Silverstone and not have any grip at all in Valencia. Mm. I mean, that's not possible. Yeah. So they somehow, I think even when they were really good, they didn't completely understand why they were so much better than the rest. And as a result of that, sometimes when you're struggling, you don't really know why you're struggling. Is that because they just they had two bikes on the grid? Is this one of the things? That's not helping. That's not helping. No. And with uh, Vinales, you don't learn a lot. When you give Vinales a sweet, very, very good handling bike, he will be fast. Yeah. But he's not going to be your best input for development, I think. Be- because it either works or it doesn't. He's, he's yeah, too he never was before. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's unbelievably fast from another planet yeah. when all the stars aligned. Yeah. That's, that's so sweet, so nice, yeah. but only then. Yeah, and otherwise yeah. he's yeah. mid-pack. Yeah. Invisible. And complaining about everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah, So yeah. he can't... That's, that's the thing what you expect from, I mean, a test rider or, you know, you can't win all your races, especially not a test rider, but you should be able to say what's good and what's bad on your bike. But he only knows what's bad. Yeah. And at some points we felt almost sorry for him in the debriefs to hear how much he had to complain. As soon as, as Vinales is not there, not in the top 10, not in the top 5, not where he expects him to be, the whole bike is crap. Well, that's not possible. So he's easily confused. He's very talented, but not the most stable hat. But very talented. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I think um, leaving Yamaha was good for him. And also, I, I think there were some changes in his personal life which made a difference, which gave him a bit more stability. But, but uh, I mean, apart from that, yeah, you. I agree. He is either because when the bike is bad, you don't say the bike is bad. You say um, it's not doing this. It's not doing this. It's not doing this. It's doing this. It's doing this. Uh, and that I think is where it is where he's making a mistake. Right. Well, we are going to take a break, and we will be back to look at the other three manufacturers in MotoGP. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast and great stuff from Peter and David. And, and the good news about it, Neil, is we're only halfway through. We've got lots more from Peter. And uh, it's always interesting to get a Rental Street Sessions interview with Peter because there's so much in it that uh, it really does show show all of us how little we actually know. It's always great to learn a lot from Peter. <laughs> exactly. One of the joys of this job is to speak to people that are a lot more intelligent uh, than you. I say that while I'm on a call with uh, both of you, which isn't exactly the case at the moment. But uh, <laughs> when I'm in the paddock, let's say, I'm speaking to people that are more intelligent than me. Um, and yes, Peter is obviously one of those guys that uh, you go to maybe if you have a, a suspicion or a, uh, an inkling. And uh, he's someone that can usually give you something that you can trust 99%, 99.9% of the time, I would say. So uh, yeah, Peter is, uh, as you just heard, uh, a fantastic listen and uh, just an absolute treasure trove of information. Yeah, and David, obviously you've had effectively three hours chatting to Peter last week and uh, there's an awful lot more still to come on next week's show for everyone. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yes. I mean, uh, we really get into um, 
not just the manufacturers, but also the changes for next year um, uh, about the sprint races and uh, especially the front tire pressure, because the front tire pressure is going to be a really big thing next year with the uh, compulsory sensor and the compulsory data logging and whether that is really going to be as secure as, uh, as Dawn will promise it will be. Super stuff, Dave. So we're going to hear from Peter next week on the show as well for part two. So from myself, Steve English, David Emmett, Neil Morrison, a big thank you to everyone for listening to part one with Peter. And obviously a massive thank you for Peter for joining us for that interview. Big thank you to Fly Racing and Renthal Street for uh, sponsoring and supporting the podcast. But also if you want to check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast and become a patron for the show you'll get lots of additional content all the way through the winter so check that out so we'll be back next week for part two with peter Baum. this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett music is provided by the liberty all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com I think that's all right, isn't it? Yeah, sure. That's great.